What an exciting morning hearing about the gospel through song. I'm thankful to Pastor Rick for his kind words, and I'm really honored to be here preaching God's word to you this morning. Please be in prayer for Pastor Rick as he gets some much-needed rest and spend some time studying God's word. Uh, my prayer for this morning is that God would use me to speak the truth. And the truth is never abstract. As we all know, we live in a society that's become increasingly pluralistic. And while I believe we can lovingly interact with people who have various worldviews, I think it's important for us to realize that the truth can be destroyed when everyone's opinion is given equal weight. Have you ever met someone or read his or, his or her opinions online and thought to yourself, how can someone be so intelligent and so ignorant at the same time? Let me give you an example from the internet so, uh, to show you that simply living in an era with more information does not necessarily make us more informed. So here we have a picture of a duck lying in a parking lot with tire tread marks, and the caption people gave it online reads, how fast was that duck going? <laughs> Obviously this caption is a joke, but it points to a serious reality, and the reality is, while we can admit that some topics require more than one point of view, we also need to guard our hearts and minds and realize that there are times when there's just a right answer and a wrong answer, a right way and a wrong way to understand something. If we continue to give, give equal footing to every opinion, then the truth is choked out and words that once had their meaning start to lose their meaning. Words as, as important as evangelical or Christian. So make no mistake, I'm I'm not describing a problem that's just out there in the world and hasn't been here in the church and in other churches. Um, it's not just outside of our community of faith. It's kind of everywhere. Within the church, we're already missing the meaning and significance of certain biblical words. And the impact to how we live out our faith when significant words lose their meaning can be detrimental. So this morning, I want us to, to focus on one word, a word that should be elemental for believers who are committed to studying God's word. And that word is righteousness. I want us to have a right understanding of righteousness. That's the name of today's message. And the takeaway is simple and gospel-centered. Christ's righteousness is given through faith in him and true faith restores all things. As I read and I prayerfully considered what God might have me preach this morning, I read a report from a pastor who was working on a Bible translation. And this pastor, as he worked with other pastors and scholars, they started to carefully consider certain words and how they would translate those words, what their word choices would be in the English, whether or not it communicated uh, well to people who would read the Bible. And he conducted a research study and was shocked to find uh, that the word translated as righteousness, a word that appears in the New Testament more than 180 times, is totally misunderstood by Christians. The research showed that more than 90% of people equated righteousness with morality or personal piety. We need a right understanding of righteousness. Morality and personal piety are not a correct definition of righteousness. The words in the Greek and the Hebrew translated as righteousness both mean divine approval or justice. So that's really important because I'm going to go a lot of places this morning. I need you to remember that. Righteousness means divine approval or justice. Righteousness always comes from the Lord. It is what is approved in his eyes. It is what is deemed right by the Lord after his examination. It is God's judicial approval. 
The gospel hinges on this word. If righteousness is what God's approved and what's deemed right by the Lord, but the church only sees it as the morality that we attain, then we're in big trouble. In Matthew 6, when Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, he is saying, work to bring about God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Seek God's approval and seek God's restorative justice above everything else in this life. But we miss this. And then suddenly, the Christians in our churches are not seeking biblical righteousness, but something more like the righteousness of the Pharisees, what we, what we might call self-righteousness, morality. This is a major problem. Who did Jesus speak against more than anybody else in the Gospels? The Pharisees and the prideful pious. And I'm sure, I'm sure none of you have ever met Christians who were condescending or self-righteous, right? <laughs> of course you have. If you've grown up in church like I have, then running into a self-righteous Christian is like going to Northwest High School and running into a redneck. Like, I went to Northwest High School. I graduated from there. I can say that. It's going to happen. <laughs> Our lack of understanding righteousness might explain why the church has become so self-righteous and condescending. Some of us are becoming the opposite of what Jesus wants us to be, which leads to my first point. A right understanding of righteousness removes our selfishness and allows us to place our faith in God rather than placing our faith in man. If we're seeking the wrong righteousness, we all need to examine ourselves and, and hear one of the things that Jesus said to his disciples. I want you to take out your Bibles or I hope you charged your fake Bible um, because we're going to go a lot of places this morning. And go to Mark chapter 8, verse 15. In Mark 8, 15, Jesus cautions his disciples. He says, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. That is a warning that's also recorded in Matthew 16, 6. But instead of Herod... We read there that Jesus cautions his disciples against the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The meaning is quite simple, but his disciples don't get it. In verse 16, right after that, Mark 8, 16, we read, And they, the disciples, began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. That would be like Pastor Rick preaching on Jesus being the bread of life, which he did a few weeks ago. And you turning to your spouse or friend in the service and saying, Why is he talking about bread? Oh, I'm so hungry. I could really go for some bread right now. Can we go to Olive Garden after this? They have the best bread. And don't you hate it when you eat all the bread and the wait staff takes forever to bring you more? Oh, yeah, that's the worst. And you entirely miss what he's talking about, about Jesus being the bread of life. And Jesus is so frustrated. And we read that he rebukes his disciples in verses 17 through 20. As Jesus rebukes them, he continues to make the spiritual point he was trying to make with his bread metaphor. His point is this, don't focus on yourselves. Stop thinking about what you will eat. I just provided more than what you needed recently, so much so that you can tell me the vivid details about how many baskets were left over, because he starts asking questions about how many baskets were left over when I did that miracle, and they give him the exact number. But you act as if you've already forgotten. I'm trying to warn you not to be focused on self-approval and the approval of others like the self-righteous religious. I'm trying to warn you that even the smallest amount of self 
is destructive, but you can't even hear what I'm saying because you're focused on yourselves. What are we going to eat next? Are we out of bread? Jesus is saying you need to reduce your concern for yourselves. You need to stop fixating on your needs and how to solve your problems and trust in me to provide. Didn't I just provide? Didn't I just do it more than you needed? You had baskets left over. I am the God who faithfully meets your needs. What concerns do you have this morning? Jesus is inviting you to have faith in him, trust in him, rather than placing your faith in yourself or in other people. What do Herod, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees have in common? They were actually quite different people groups. Well, the Pharisees were pretentious, legalistic, religious elites, and the Sadducees were a political, religious faction supporting the paranoid, violent, and abusive political dynasty of Herod. However, despite their differences in political and religious objectives, here's how they all came together. They all worked together to oppose Jesus. Why? Well, because what they all had in common was they focused on themselves and building their man-made kingdoms. They had no desire for a kingdom that's not of this world. They were their own gods, and they had no need for God and His righteousness, His approval of their lives, His justice, and His wisdom for what is right. When Jesus gave an example of what it looks like for people to seek His kingdom and His righteousness first, He pointed to John the Baptist. In Matthew eleven eleven. Jesus calls John the greatest person ever born. There are many things I could share as to why Jesus said that about John, but one reason that I want to share is that John was a man of humility. John knew his role was to point people to Jesus and to the coming kingdom. In fact, there was a moment in John's ministry where um, he had a chance where he could gather his followers and claim their loyalty or do the right thing and tell them, This is the Messiah. You should follow Jesus. And what did he do? He famously said, he must increase and I must decrease. He, Jesus, must increase. I must decrease. Godly righteousness keeps us from putting our hope in the wrong place. So many of us today are just like Herod and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, more than we care to admit. Our hope is in our own power. Our hope is in seeing the government operate in concert with our thoughts and values. Or our hope is in our personal holiness. Jesus wants us to know that type of hope is misplaced. Jesus wants us to trust in his power. He wants us to put our hope in his eternal kingdom. He wants us to trust in the holiness he gives through the cross because only his imparted righteousness gives us God's approval and new hearts that will seek to bring his justice to the world. As a pastor um, who was a well-known defender of the faith In the early 20th century, uh, uh, there was a pastor who once gave a message, and then uh, after the message, a lady approached him uh, when the service ended, and she held her fingers together like this. She said, Pastor, your sermon made me feel about this big. And he said, well, ma'am, that's still too big. Righteousness removes us from the equation entirely and understands salvation as a gift of God from beginning to end, from the moment we're saved until the moment he calls us home. The Apostle Paul talks about righteousness more than any other writer of Scripture, and so I want you to go to Romans chapter 4. Let's see what Paul has to say about righteousness. We're going to start by looking at verses 3 through 5. Paul speaks of Abraham here. 
Because the first place in Scripture where the word righteousness is, is used is in reference to Abraham in Genesis 15, 6. And here's what Paul says, starting in verse 3. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. If you read Abraham's story, if you go back to Genesis, you will learn in no time that he was not a perfect man. Abraham made several mistakes, but when God revealed himself to Abraham, he trusted in God. He believed in God, and God counted it to him as righteousness. In verse 4, right here, we see that the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Most of you in this room have a job. Do you ever get a paycheck and say, yes, free money? No. It's so kind of my employer to give me this gift. Of course you don't. That's the point Paul is making here. This past Tuesday, I went to Chick-fil-A with my nephews, and Chick-fil-A gave me a free entree, but was it really free? No. It cost me my dignity. I had to dress up like a cow. Before you try to mess with me for sharing this with you, I just want to remind you, if you mess with the bull, you get the paper horns. Paul's point is this, everything has a cost. Sin has a penalty that must be paid. The payment for sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's a judicial aspect to the word righteousness because righteousness is about God's approval. God is the one who is judge over what is right. As verse 5 says, it is not the person who works for righteousness who attains it, but the one who believes in God, believes in Jesus, who justifies the ungodly, that person, their faith is counted as righteousness. God is the one who made the world and said, it is good. We are the ones who brought sin into the world and wrecked it. We can't save ourselves because we are part of his creation. We brought the wreck into the world. We can't fix it. We also can't restore or recreate the world when we're the ones, we're not the ones who created it to be, to be good in the first place at the beginning, but God can. Well, God's righteousness restores creation as God intended it to be, and it restores relationships so we can love God and love others as we should. So I want you to remember that God's righteousness restores. Look at Romans chapter 8, verses 3 through 4. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. These verses show us again that we are made right with God through Jesus' work in living the righteous life that God required and dying the death that we deserved. God takes our worst and he gives us his best. An exchange is made. And since we cannot be made righteous by keeping the law, we are made righteous by faith in Jesus who kept the law and died for sin, even though he did not deserve the wages of sin. 
He takes our death and we get his righteousness through faith. Anything other than that is not the gospel. Jesus plus faith equals the gospel. Jesus plus anything else, not the gospel. We are given Christ's righteousness and restored in a right relationship with God the way it was before sin entered the world by faith. What does Paul say in verse 4? Does he say, so after Jesus makes the judicial payment that you could not accomplish through the law, then Jesus goes back to heaven and says, well, good luck. I made everything uh, right with you with God for now. So good luck figuring out the rest of your life. I gave you a great start, so don't blow it. No. No. Salvation does not come with a mortgage leveraged against your soul that will threaten foreclosure if the payments don't arrive. In verse 4, Paul says, righteousness is fulfilled in us, and we don't walk according to the flesh anymore, but according to the Spirit. This is not just about morality. Morality is a part of it, but it's not the point. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to bring the dead to life. You can be moral, but not alive. I know moral people who don't believe in God. You may know some people like that too. Morality is a good thing, but morality doesn't save us. God's standard is perfection, not morality. The believer's morality comes from a different place. It comes when we've been restored to a right relationship with God, and we continue that right relationship through His Spirit, God's power given to us. When we are restored by God's righteousness, when we let his righteousness recreate us and cause us to repent, then we can love God and love others as we should. Now, earlier I said we need a lower estimate of ourselves and an understanding that God's righteousness and his righteousness alone is what we rely on for salvation. As we consider that we are God's creation made in his image and his righteousness restores us, I hope you realize that having a lower estimate of your ability to be righteous does not mean that you have no value at all. It's the opposite, actually. You are of immeasurable worth to God if he would give his only son so that you could be restored from the damage of the sin that you brought into the world. About 10 years ago, there was a teacher who prepared for a lesson with his fifth and sixth grade class. And he took some supplies to school with him, which included a large glass bowl, a can of beef, fatty tissue, a jar of olives, sauerkraut, some anchovies, and a $100 bill. He put all the ingredients together in a bowl and mixed them up really well, including the money. And he asked his students if they wanted to taste it. And a few brave ones tried it, and of course, it was truly awful. And so he told his students, well, it doesn't taste good, and he started to pretend to throw it away. And at that point, the students went crazy yelling at him, don't throw that away. And the teacher asked, why shouldn't I throw it away? The kids responded, because it's valuable. And the teacher countered with, but it smells disgusting. And at that point, the kids rushed to the front of the room, each one of them volunteering to reach into the bowl and pull out the $100 bill, nearly trampling each other to the point to to be the one closest to the bowl. And in that moment, the teacher read to his class from Genesis about how every single human being There's the image of God and how no matter what else is mixed in there, a person still has limitless worth in God's eyes. Do you see yourself like that? 
Do you see other people that way? Do you see people who are trapped in sin that way? Pastor Rick recently tweeted something. This is going to be a first for me. I'm quoting our pastor and through Twitter. (laughs) He recently tweeted something that I think helps us understand how we can simultaneously have a low view of ourselves and a high view of our value in God's eyes. He said, grace is that which tells a man that in spite of all that is wrong about his life, God looks upon him with favor and draws him to himself. You and I get the free gift of righteousness because of who God is and because he loves us so greatly as his creation that he sees value in us. We are being restored. 2 Corinthians 5.21, we just kind of sang it when we sang the song Jesus Messiah, says, for our sake he made him, he God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus died that we might become the righteousness of God, just like Jesus Christ was not a sinner, but was treated as if he were, believers who have not yet been made righteous entirely until our glorification in heaven, are treated as if they were righteous. He bore our sins so that we can bear his righteousness. That's what Paul means when he says that we might become the righteousness of God. Paul says this another way, if you look just a few verses earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, when he says, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. We are to be living for Christ And yes, that includes morality. But what it really means is being holy, as he is holy. God's holiness is his otherness. It's not his morality. It's his otherness and his being different from us. So becoming his righteousness means more than morality. It means that God desires to give us Christ's righteousness to not only restore fallen sinful man into a right relationship with himself but to be used by him to bring about his justice in this world. God's righteousness, or as we could call it, his restorative justice, works to justify us personally, and it is at work cosmically. Now, when I say cosmically, I mean that God is making all relationships right, restoring his broken creation with his divine justice. And one day, Jesus will return as our king and restore the shalom, the peace that was broken by sin at the garden, and God will say, it is good, just as he once did when he created the world. If God is the one restoring peace, restoring shalom to the world, then you might ask, well, what part do believers play? You might say, Dennis, I get it. We brought sin into the world, and only God can restore his creation. His creation includes us and everything else. But how are we supposed to respond? Are you saying that we just have faith, believe, and that's it? Yes, but no, that's not exactly it. When Christians have faith and believe, those things don't just equate to an intellectual or or an emotional response. If our faith is merely intellectual or it's emotional experience that we have in our worship service, then we're right back to square one. And we're no better than the religious people of Jesus' day. And remember that Jesus in Matthew 5, 20 says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Did you know that Jesus had a half-brother? I mean, he could only have half-brothers, right? Think about it. 
And the book of James was written by his half-brother James. And James had a nickname. James was known as James the Just. So you could also say his name was James the Righteous. And it's appropriate that James the Just would famously write the words that we know, faith without works is dead. Having God's righteousness must include action that brings about his justice because we have a faith that restores. And this is the final point I want to make to you about biblical righteousness. When God's righteousness dwells in us, we reflect his glory. We become part of God's restoration process. It's it's something that overflows from us. We just can't help it. It's kind of like the words of Peter and John in Acts 4, 19 through 20, when the governing authorities are trying to stop them from preaching the gospel. And here's what they say. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. Through Jesus, we are declared right in our relationship with God. We are being restored to become his righteousness and we reflect his glory which that word means significance or weight, God's importance. We, we reflect his glory to the world as his restored image bearers. I'm going to read that sentence to you one more time because that's the whole message in one sentence. Through Jesus, we're declared right in our relationship with God. We are being restored to become his righteousness, and we reflect his glory to the world as his restored image bearers. We have been restored as image bearers, Our role is to reflect God's image to the world around us. As we participate in God's righteousness, living as holy people and avoiding sin is not about rules as much as it is about relationship. Jesus has taken my heart of stone and he's given me a heart of flesh. Let's go back to Romans chapter 8 and look at the first two verses. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Do you see what Paul is saying here? We're set free. Free to do what? For what purpose? We are free to live according to the law of the Spirit rather than the law that keeps us headed towards sin and death. It only leads there. We are free to live in God's righteousness and his approval rather than trying to get God's approval through a standard we can't reach. So Jesus met the standard of perfection for us because we could never do it. So rather than spending our time chasing something that Christ has already accomplished on our behalf, we are free to spend our lives glorifying God and showing others his love. We don't have to concern ourselves with, well, do I have God's approval Did I pray harder than anybody else? Did did I go to church more than anybody else? I better fill in the blank with whatever you think makes you holy. No. If you have Jesus, you have God's approval. You are now free to follow him wherever he leads you without worrying about whether or not he approves of you. You might say, that sounds nice in theory, Dennis, but aren't you cheapening the gospel? If we're just free to do whatever, then why even study God's law? What's the point of having the Bible and having God's word? Well, I'm glad you asked that hypothetical person that I just made up. Those are great questions. And my answer is mirrors. Mirrors, yeah, those things that you look into to make sure that nobody's about to rear-end you on battleground or I-40, mirrors. We can't talk about righteousness 
causing us to reflect God without talking about mirrors. Turn your Bibles to James chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 23 through 25. And here's what James the just has to say about righteousness. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. We desperately need God's word. Because righteousness is about lordship. Jesus is our liberating king who's freed us from sin to serve him, not to serve ourselves. Because we're meant to reflect God's glory, we must focus on God and not on ourselves. The word righteousness carries with it the connotation of straightness. When a mirror is straight, what does it do? It gives an accurate reflection God's word keeps us on his mission of justice and it keeps us straight so that we can accurately reflect him. We're freed from sin to keep our eyes on Jesus. Martin Luther said, the law accuses us and shows us our sin like a mirror. We must remain faithful to our king to do his justice in the world. However, there is a danger that the, that the point that Apostle Paul is trying to make us aware of, and I'm trying to communicate to you this morning as well, we cannot focus on our sin or ourselves. We must focus on our Savior. If we start focusing on our sin or ourselves, then we're like inwardly curved mirrors. We stop giving an accurate reflection of God, and we become like those bent mirrors that you find in a funhouse or a carnival. What do they do? Do they give an accurate reflection? No, they distort the image. And when those of us who believe in Jesus become self-obsessed and we constantly worry about the approval of God that is already ours in Jesus, then we don't reflect God accurately because we don't rest in his love. We don't seem to have the peace that he came to restore. And we aren't actively participating in restoring the world to have a right relationship with him. We're blind to the needs of others Because we're looking in rather than looking out for those who need God's righteousness, his restorative justice. As I close, I want to give you a quote from author Brennan Manning. He he says this well when he says, The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him with their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. DC Talk didn't write that, by the way, for those of you who are 90s kids. It's Brendan Manning. They stole it from him. We must have a righteousness through faith that removes ourselves, is restored by Jesus, and reflects God's glory to the world around us as we participate in his restoration of all things. Let's pray.